Well, I realized after I got into my studies that I was not going to be able to finish the character of God this week. So we're one more week. There'll be four parts to the character of God from Genesis 1 to 3. And I want to remind us as we start this morning why we're doing what we're doing. Because kind of when you get into something that goes week after week, you can lose sight of that. And um, my, my concern is that today in the church, the United States and in the West, and some other parts of the world as well, I guess, uh, people are beginning to question, and I'm talking about followers of Christ, Christian people are beginning to question the authority of these early chapters of Genesis as factual history. And many so-called evangelicals are beginning to uh, reinterpret these chapters as poems or allegories or even myth or story that's simply kind of there to, 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 to explain some things to us, but it didn't really happen. And the reason that we're doing this study is, is I want us to understand that God has rooted every important truth in the Bible in these three chapters. Everything that is fleshed out through the rest of Scripture, the whole unfolding story, including the Gospel, it has its roots in these three chapters. And they're found, the roots of these teachings are found in practically every verse, in one way or another. So that as we begin to see how much is really there, we begin to understand how important it is that we trust the Scripture is the inspired Word of God and interpret these chapters literally because they really speak to us uh, about precious truths that we would not have otherwise. And um, if we don't take it literally, then all of these things begin to crumble. The whole foundation begins to crumble. And our understanding of the world and of God and of our sin nature and of redemption will not make sense, really, without an understanding of the truthfulness of these opening chapters of the Bible. So that's why we're there. And as we go through the teachings, then when we come to the end, I'm going to go back and look at the, the actual literal interpretation and the, if you please, science of creation that we find in Genesis. And just let you know, uh, by way of uh, investigation, that you don't have to, to be a, a dummy, you don't have to be uh, an ignoramus or a superstitious or give up your brain to be a follower of Jesus Christ and believe His Word literally. Uh, I don't think that we can ever prove God by science. The Bible never tries to do that. And I don't think we're ever going to prove to somebody else who's an unbeliever to follow Christ by argumentation and, and rationalizing or rationalism, we're not going to be able to prove that because people who have closed minds and blinded eyes just can't see it. But as believers, God has not uh, grounded our faith kind of in the air. It's actually anchored in time and space and history and when we, when we have our eyes open and our hearts open to the truth, uh, we will discover that uh, what we know about the data, about science, actually supports uh, the literal understanding of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We'll see that as we go along. So, this morning, we're back to, to the character of God. Uh, I call it part three, but we're actually only going to be looking at one of God's attributes this morning. His attribute of goodness. God is a good God, and it is evident in all three of these early chapters. His goodness kind of leaps out at us. Not only His goodness, but some, some parallel attributes like His patience and His mercy and His grace. These are part of His goodness. And these kind of jump off the page at us as we look at these three chapters. One of the reasons why I felt it important to just stop for a whole sermon, a whole message, and focus on goodness is because this is an attribute, probably the attribute of God, that is most often questioned and maligned by friend and foe alike. You know? 
if you look at the enemies of the truth, the gospel, uh, agnostics, atheists, people who deny the faith, one of the reasons that they most frequently give is, if there was a God, there would not be all this evil in the world. There wouldn't be pain. There wouldn't be suffering. If there is a good God, none of this would exist. So either there is no God or He is not good. And that's a typical argument of, of unbelievers. But, before we smugly smile and agree with that, uh, let us realize that it is also one of the most questioned attributes of God by His own people. You know, the fact is, when tragedy strikes, when pain and suffering come into our own lives, frequently followers of Jesus Christ are tempted to doubt the goodness of God. I mean, it's just one of the things that just pops into our minds. Uh, For one thing, because the enemy puts it there. The accuser of the brethren not only accuses us to ourselves and us to each other, but he accuses God to us. Has God really said, God's holding back on you. God is not really good. Or this wouldn't have been allowed in your life. And so... Uh, that is the kind of thing that believers wrestle with. And I want us this morning to look at these three chapters and see how the goodness of God kind of leaps off of every verse and page as we look at that. So I'm going to approach my uh, sermon outline this morning. You remember we were talking about propositional revelation a few weeks ago, that God speaks to us in sentences that are true that, that we can kind of condense and, and get down to the, what's the point here? And that the Bible speaks to us in those terms. And when we identify the point, we can begin to add things together and develop an argument that is sound from the Scripture for what is true. And so we're going to start this morning by looking at the chapters in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to discover how the goodness of God is represented And then we're going to make some assumptions. We're going to ask some questions about it. Okay, Uh, what does this mean? What kind of uh, interpretation can we give to it? And then we're going to test our assumptions back in the Scripture to see if they hold true and then evaluate the problem that people have when they face the goodness of God in terms of the revelation. So let's look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and talk about how it is that we see the goodness of God in these chapters. You all know in chapter 1, it like jumps off the page at you, after the creative days, when God has made something, and it's kind of the end of the day, and, and He's looked at what He's made that day, what are the words that you read? It is good. Behold, He saw what He had done, and He said, This is good. So we begin to get the impression that when God makes something, He makes good stuff. God don't make junk. You know, Uh, He he just doesn't. He makes good stuff. And when we get to the end of chapter 1, the end of the sixth day, and we've seen everything that He's made, then what does He say? It is very good. You know, He doesn't, it's just not good. It's very good. He looks at the whole thing and He says, Behold, it is very good. So when we look at the creation, the heavens, the stars, the sun, the moon, the earth, the land, the the vegetation, the animals, all the things that we see on the earth, God's pronouncement about the whole thing is, this is very good. And we learn that God makes very good things. So don't lose sight of that because we're going to come back to it in a moment. Then look at the end of chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. Uh, I'd like you to to just look at that. We're going to read those few verses and learn something else about God. In verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, And by the way, God's goodness is kind of uh, intertwined with His blessing. God's blessings come out of His goodness. And uh, we see that when, when God is acting toward us kindly, benevolently, with goodness, blessings 
come into our lives. Um, I think sometimes as Christians, we're, we're uh, a little hesitant to, um, to draw that parallel. And I, and I think maybe because the prosperity gospel has kind of scared us a little bit. You know, the name it, claim it, uh, give me 10% and God will give you a million dollars or, you know, that kind of thing that you hear on the TV evangelist and whatever. And, and uh, if, if you put your money in the offering plate, you're going to get that Mercedes you've always wanted, you know. And, and, we, and we recoil uh, against that, and rightfully so. But maybe we take our uh, reaction to that to the extreme in the other direction because God does, in fact, give blessing. And He gives blessing in the real world. It's not just pie in the sky. God gives blessing here and now. And if I were a Jewish rabbi this morning bringing you my homily, uh, I would link these two very tightly together because in the mind of the Jewish people, God's blessings are really linked to His goodness. They kind of they go together. And so we find in verse 28 of Genesis 1, it says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you. Now, we have a tendency, again, sometimes to think, you know, that when it says God blessed them, that He did something like this. Bless you, my child. Like, yeah, ooh. Like, what, well, what does that do? You know? Just to hear the words, does that, is that a blessing? I mean, what goes with it? Is it just kind of waving the hand, or does something happen? And God says, He gave them. So when it says He blessed them, we're about to discover the way that He blessed them was He gave them something. And here's what it says He gave them. I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. God is going to give them what they need for sustenance. He's going to care for them. And then he says to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. So he's not only providing for them, but he's providing for the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and, and all the things that uh, walk and roam and creep and populate the surface of the earth, that He has given them dominion over. He has given them that, and He has blessed them and all of the living things. And God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So, God's goodness and blessings at the end of chapter 1, are amplified in the fact that God has made provision for His creation. You know, when we think about what He made, He made a lot of good things. Everything He made was good. But it was good not only in its creative appearance, but also in its functioning, in how it worked, in, in, in how life moved along. God made it good. It's also amplified in the fact that we see in these verses, and I know this disturbs everyone that likes prime rib or a good juicy steak, but we see in these verses that meat was not a part of the provision. We find that every living thing was given the plants and the vegetables and the fruits, and that what we now observe and what evolutionists call the survival of the fittest was not the way God made life originally. In other words, the food chain did not include creation with conscious life eating each other. It was the fruits and the vegetables and the plants that God provided for food. I have uh, found it interesting to note uh, recently because you you, you know you kind of get to the point of okay what's a living thing, and uh, 
and uh, <laughs> every once in a while these things pop into my mind. I wonder if I should tra- chase the trail. I, I won't right now. But, um, well, yes, I will. I, I, you know, I was going to say I'm not a hunter. Now, when I say that, everybody goes, you know, those of you that are, ah, I knew it. He's a wimp. He's, he, uh, no, I love the woods. And, and, I, and I'm a very good shot, if I do say so myself. I, I have a trophy uh, with the, from the police department from years ago when I was on the pistol team. I have a trophy for being a, a, an expert marksman and placing second place in a whole division of all county law enforcement officers. So I can shoot, but I don't particularly like to hunt because I'm not really wild about killing things. Now, that does not mean that's wrong. I just want you to know that. I'm not opposed to hunting. I read a very fascinating article about the overpopulation of deer. And uh, quite honestly, if we didn't have hunters, we would, we would really have a big problem. That's why the parks are open for hunting and all those kinds of things. And the Department of Natural Resources tries to keep all that in balance. So there's nothing wrong, wrong with hunting. In fact, uh, after the flood, God said very clearly to Noah, um, I'm giving you animals to eat. I'm giving you meat to eat. And I think the reason there was that change is because um, after the flood, some things happened to the structure of the earth that necessitated a a different kind of protein being added into the diet. We'll get into that mm, way down the road when we talk about the cosmology of Genesis. But, But something happened that changed the, the whole equation, and God said, you can have meat. But in the beginning, meat and animals were not a part of the food chain. The food chain consisted purely of vegetative life. And what I started to say on that track was, there are some biologists who are creationists that are now revisiting the whole subject of how to understand the the classification of living things. Because notice it says, all the living things I have given plants to eat. And and your immediate question is, why not plants were living? Well, in contemporary biological terms, you have the two major divisions, botany and zoology. And zoology is all the animal critters, and botany is all the plant critters, and When we make that division, and yes, plants are living things. I mean, all you have to do is wait for spring, and you'll see that life is going on in the plants. But it's interesting that the Hebrew wording here, and maybe we don't do the best job in English, and that's our problem, but the Hebrew wording here is a little different, and the point seems to be a division over conscious life, versus kind of an unconscious plant existence. Plants don't have thoughts. Uh, They don't uh, learn. They don't reason. And and, and I realize if you take that too far, you know, you you get into trouble with the animal world, but you got to admit, animals learn. I mean, there's just no question. They learn. They're conscious. Uh, My dog likes me most of the time. Sometimes he does not. Uh, he's getting older now. He's getting a little hard of hearing. His eyes are dimming. That kind of happens, you know. And uh, I startled him from a nap last evening, and he almost bit me. But I got my hand out of the way just in time. And I didn't really blame him for that because he, you know, it took him a while to get his eyes open. or always what was going on. And then he sort of got to be Max again. But um, animals have conscious life. People have conscious life. We have a much different capacity for reasoning than, than animals who, who make adjustments in their life based on what's happening in their environment. But, but God is saying that for conscious life, the provision is vegetative product for food. We don't see any killing. We don't see any bloodshed. We don't see any death. We don't see anything in the original creation of violence and predator and prey. Something has happened, but in the beginning, in the beginning, God made a world that was very good, and that goodness included the absence 
of death of conscious life. It's very, very fascinating. And uh, we'll delve into that more deeply in the future. In chapter 2, we see some other aspects of God's goodness. Now, in chapter 2, again, uh, just to give you a preview, there are those interpreters of the Scriptures that think chapter 1 and chapter 2 are two different stories of creation. And that Moses had both of these stories, or actually most of the people that believe that don't think Moses was the guy that wrote it. But they, they see, okay, there's two different stories, and whoever put Genesis together uh, didn't know how to blend them, so he just put them both in there. You know, okay, here, here's one story of creation, here's another story of creation. Because they see a, a sequence problem. I'm going to unravel that for you later down the road as we study the exegesis, the, the, the analysis of the passage. But let me just say for the moment that chapter 2 is a telescopic view of a portion of day 6. It's not a different creation story. It is a, a, a dial down, get up close and personal view of the sixth day, primarily when God made man. Because chapter 2 is all about the creation of human beings. And so we go back to day six and we say, okay, how did this exactly happen? And when we go back uh, and begin to look at it very, very closely, two things stand out. In all of this passage about the goodness of God, we come across this statement, it is not good. And it's like, wait a minute. I thought everything God made was good. Well, but he wants us to understand by this phrase, it is not good, that he's going to highlight something. And this is what he says, it is not good that man should be alone. And notice that he remedies the problem in chapter 2. It is not good that man should be alone. Why? Well, last week we talked about the fact that God is a relational being. He relates to other persons. The persons of the Godhead. We looked at the Trinity. Now we're looking at human beings. And God says human beings need fellowship. They need relationship. They need intimacy. And we start out with a marriage, but the marriage produces children, which eventually, and families, which eventually produce an extended family, which eventually, well, we have a whole world full of people now. And we have societies, and we have nationalities, and, and we have cultures emerging from the idea that God said it is not good for man to be alone, and so I will make for him a helpmeet, one who is different and yet like him in essence. There will be fellowship, there will be uh, communication, uh, all of the things that go with that God created when he created Eve, and from the creation of Adam and Eve stems a race, a society, because God knows and, in fact, designed us in his image to be relational. We enjoy each other. We, you know, we love each other. We talk to each other. We are relational people. So God points that out, and in the sixth day also makes woman so that there is a relationship. And also, it says that he planted a garden. Now, he's made the world. He's made the, he separated the land from the water. He's created all the plant life, the vegetables and, and fruit, and all that kind of thing. But now we're told that as he creates the man, he creates, he makes and plants a garden. A garden that is beautiful. A garden that is stocked with everything you could want or need. A garden that has order. A garden that has a provision. A garden that is a perfect environment. And we're told when we come to the, uh, toward the end of chapter 2 that the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. 
there, there are a couple of things that arise out of that statement, but one of them for sure is they did not need covering in the garden to be comfortable. It, it was the perfect environment, you know. Walk outside today without much on, and, and you're going to be uncomfortable in very short order. So that early world was not quite like that. They were comfortable in this garden paradise without the need of any kind of covering, clothing, or protection. God created this perfect environment. The goodness of God is seen in, in this creation of Adam and Eve and the garden. Then in chapter 3, we come to that sad passage in human history. And when you think of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I would really like to encourage you to, to create this outline in your mind. Because these three chapters are important for, for the, the central message that each one contains. Chapter 1, God made the heavens and the earth and the whole world. He created everything. He's the creator. Chapter 2, He made us, Adam and Eve, male and female, He made the human race. That's what chapter 2 is about. Chapter 1 is about the whole creation. Chapter 2 is about the human race. Chapter 3 is all about what went wrong. Because when we look at the world today, there's no question of the fact that what we see does not look good in, most, in many cases. We look at the world today and we see problems. And we see disease, and we see pain, and we see suffering, and we see wars, and we see poverty, and we see hunger, and we see all those things out there that are not good. And chapter 3 is the explanation we need for what went wrong. So you have these three chapters, the world, the human race, and the problem. And the hint at the end of chapter 3 of the solution. But even in chapter 3, filled with tragedy, though it is, because it's the story, the record of Adam and Eve rebelling against God and bringing death upon themselves and the human race that was to come, we find that God is good. We discover this, first of all, in the fact that he said to them, in the day that you eat from that tree, you are going to die. Now, that didn't change. They actually did die. They didn't understand all, all that that meant. But the moment they ate and rebelled, they died spiritually. The Holy Spirit vacated the premises and they were spiritually dead. That's why they were hiding from God. But, they didn't drop dead physically on the spot. Why? Because of the patience of God. God now has human beings on His hands that have said no to Him. That have turned their back on Him. And they're headed down a path of misery that only He can fully comprehend. But instead of saying, alright, that's it, enough, I'm not putting up with you anymore... He sustains their physical life because He has redemption in mind. And He's going to give them an opportunity. And friends, one of the things that comes to me, I mean, I don't, I don't say this in every situation, but whenever I hear someone that's, that's uh, in, in real trouble, either physically or spiritually, and they're, they're, you know, they're facing death's door, or they're way out there in sin somewhere. I mean, their lives are just messed up. The thing that I always think about is the fact as long as they're breathing, there's hope. As long as they're breathing, there's hope. Because as long as you can breathe and think, there's an opportunity to come home to God. There's an opportunity to respond to the gospel. As long as you're breathing, there's a way back. And that's, in essence, what God is, is pointing out here. I'm going to let you keep breathing because I love you. And I'm going to be patient, not only with you, but with the rest of the race that are infected by your disobedience. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to give physical life 
because some will come to spiritual life and return to the heart of the Father and live forever. So God's goodness is seen in the fact that He sustained their physical life. It's also evident in the fact that He came looking for them. And here's a great message in Scripture. God loves lost people. God loves lost people. They didn't go looking for Him. Did you notice that? They went hiding from Him. But He comes looking for them. That's a part of the goodness of God. It's a part of His mercy to reach out to people in deep trouble. And that's what God... He's a merciful God. He's a patient God. He is a merciful God. He reaches out to people in crisis. That's His nature. He came looking for them. And then when He found them, we also find His grace. They were hiding because they were ashamed, because they were lost, because they were naked. Now, we wear clothes today, and the people in the nudist colonies have got it all wrong. (laughs) You know, that's not the natural way. It might have been before the fall, but afterwards it's not. Because for some reason, the shame and the consequence of the fall, there is a desire to cover ourselves from being overly transparent. It's not just a physical thing. It's a desire to hide. Uh, We don't want people to see through us because we know that everything people would see if they could see through us is not pretty. It's ugly. And uh, they covered up. But they covered up with leaves. You know? I think I've asked you this question before sometime in the past. But have you ever tried sewing leaves together? You know? You ought to do that someday when you, when you just don't have anything else to do. You know, go out and get a bunch of leaves, take a needle and thread, try to sew them together. See how well that works. You know, if you manage to get a garment put together, you're going to have to walk like this. Because if you move very much, it's coming apart. It's not very adequate covering. And, and, and you, you know, you have to ask yourself, well, why did they pick leaves? Well, because it never occurred to them to kill an animal. It never occurred to them. They'd never done it. No one had ever done it. No animal had ever... They'd never seen anything die. Why would they think that? You talk about a paradigm shift. You know what a paradigm is? It's kind of the way you see the world. The way you see something. The way you look at life. Well, boy, they had a paradigm shift here because... It never crossed their mind that you could kill a creature. They, they took plants, the same thing they had for food, they took for covering, and it didn't work very well. And God comes on the scene, and what does He do? I had this thought as I was preparing this. How did God feel when He killed one of His own creatures to cover them? How did God feel? You know? He killed an animal, or more than one, to take the skin and to cover Adam and Eve. Now, just as a parenthesis here, some people, some people think that God walking with them in the cool of the day is kind of a, it's kind of a, uh, the, the fancy term is anthropomorphism, you know, relating God in human terms so that we can understand, like, come on, God doesn't walk around with people. I'm not so sure that he didn't walk around with them in human form. He appeared in other places in the Old Testament in human form. Remember remember Abraham? Remember Joshua, the captain of the host of the Lord? There are other places in the Old Testament where God appeared. I'm not so sure that when he walked with them, he was not manifesting himself in, in a form they could relate to. 
I'd like to, I, I, I would like to have seen that drama as God called one of his creatures over and slit its throat and opened its carcass and pulled off the skin and covered Adam and Eve with it. We're going to get to some of that next week when we look at some of other, other of God's attributes, but know here that God's grace comes out of his goodness because even in their sin, he provided for them. He provided covering for their shame. He provided a way to cover up. He provided covering for their sin. And they learned that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. They learned that sin causes death. And frankly, that is the mercy and the goodness of God. And so, there in the garden, they experience that. But before the chapter is done, they also experience something else. God gave them hope. Now, we have a tendency to look at that and say, He threw them out of the garden. Everything came to an end. Judgment occurred. But God gave them hope. He said, From your seed will come one that even though Satan bruises his heel, he will crush his head. And Adam and Eve understood that to mean, they knew what that was saying. They understood that that would be the defeat of the one who had just deceived them. And we know that because in Genesis chapter 4, which is not part of our in-depth study, but we find that as soon as they have their first son, Eve says, I have gotten a man-child from the Lord. This is our hope, basically. This is the one. Well, she was off by about 4,000 years or so. But nonetheless, she knew she was expecting a Savior, a Redeemer, someone that would defeat the works of the devil. Because God had promised them in Genesis 3.15, He had promised them that I will put enmity and He will bruise you on the head uh, even though you bruise his heel, he will crush, crush your head, which is the earliest point of the gospel. So in these three chapters of Genesis, we have clearly demonstrated for us in many ways the goodness of God. Now, if we determine from the end of our analysis that God is good and that there is no darkness or ugliness or blackness in him. Is that substantiated in the rest of Scripture? On the back of your study guide this morning, I have given you a list of Scriptures that you can look at that affirm our conclusion throughout the Bible. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. 1 Chronicles 16.34, 2 Chronicles 7.3, when God came down upon Solomon's temple and it was dedicated in the Shekinah glory of God, the people praised the Lord saying, He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And throughout the Psalms, we constantly find a testimony to the fact that God is good. Goodness is a part of who He is. It's a part of His nature. In fact, Jesus talking to the rich young ruler. You remember, or you remember that scene in the Gospels where this, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is already ahead of him. Because this young man thought he was pretty good. And he, he, he thought, well, what's missing? I, I need, uh, if there's anything missing, let me know, because I think I'm on track here. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth was, there is none good but God. Why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Now, my point here this morning is not to debate the, the point of Jesus' statement, nor 
was Jesus denying his deity because he affirmed it in many, many other places, nor was he saying he was not good. All he was saying was, there's only one who is truly good. And that one is God. So Jesus Christ testifies to the goodness of God. What the young man didn't realize was he was not good. He thought he was, but he was not. And he was about to be introduced to that reality. And Jesus, first words out of his mouth, challenged the young man. Because only God is truly, truly, intrinsically, infinitely, perfectly good. Then we recognize in Genesis that everything God made was good without a flaw or a defect. Now, when we look at the world today and we see the problems that are in it, things that are not good, we have to consider one of two possibilities. You know what they are? Number one, we've misunderstood the Bible. God is not good. God makes bad stuff too. That's one possibility. The other possibility is God is good and everything He makes is good. So what is bad, He did not make. And we have to go back to the Scripture and test that hypothesis. And when we do, we find that over and over and over again, the Scripture affirms His goodness. And we learn from the end of chapter 3 and what follows that the evil was introduced by something else. And then the real debater of this age will come to me and say, well, but he made the possibility for evil, so therefore he's responsible. And I submit to you that that is a complete misunderstanding of the nature of God and of the potential of choice. Because if God is good and the Scripture affirms that He is, then the capacity to choose evil is not in and of itself a bad thing. It is only when it's exercised against God that it becomes bad. Until that choice is made, it is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. And why is it good? Why is it a good thing to have the capacity of choice? Well, if you didn't have the capacity of choice, you could not love. The supreme, highest, deepest, richest commitment, emotion, choice, capacity of human beings and of God, in, in a sense, is to love. But love that is not freely given is not love at all. You recognize that, don't you? If you have a friend that you enjoy being with or you're married, how would your friend feel or your marriage partner if you said to them one day, you know, I only love you because I have to. I hardwired into my genes. I didn't pick you. I never would have picked you if I'd had a choice, but I just got to do it because that's how I'm wired. I migrate to certain people. I, I married you. I, I have the friends I have because it's printed on my biological circuits and I don't have any rhyme or reason to say about it. By the way, did you know that materialistic evolutionists buy into that? That, that those who go into the chemical cause and effect relationship of all human emotion believe that all human choice and emotion is predetermined by genetic predisposition and that no one is free. We are all merely machinery products of, of, the, of the wheel that's turning. 
That makes you feel warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? And when you die, you're done. That's it. The end. You go back to dirt so something else can pop up in your place. Oh, well. There's no love in that system. It cannot exist. In order for love to exist, there has to be choice. It has to be free. Adam and Eve were given the opportunity to love God freely by giving them a choice not to. And without that choice, their free expression of love could not exist. And frankly, without that choice, it cannot exist between people. You choose people that you like to talk to. You choose people you enjoy being with to share a cup of coffee. You choose your friends because you you like them and they like you. It's reciprocal. You choose your marriage partner because you like each other. You enjoy being together. These are this this is the 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 beauty and the joy and the blessing that kind of makes life stick. And so we need to recognize that without the capacity to choose, love could not exist. And God creating Adam and Eve with the capacity to choose does not make him liable or responsible for their choice. So when we look around the world today and we see that not everything is good, we should recognize immediately that if God is good and everything isn't, something tragic has happened. Something's gone wrong. The other thing that we should recognize is that God himself created the possibility For Adam and Eve to go their own way. But he is not responsible for the consequences of their choice when they chose evil. And I want to tell you something here this morning. Those of you that are parents, this is some of the best good news I think a parent can ever hear. I sometimes hear younger people today saying, you know what? I don't think I want to bring children into this world. This is a crazy, evil world. I don't know that I want to do that. Well, when you bring children into the world, you bring potential into the world. They could be the next person that that transforms nations. You have no idea who they're going to become. You know? Yeah, they could be the next Adolf Hitler. They could also be the next Winston Churchill. Not that he was an ideal example to follow in every case. But he certainly was the man of the hour for England. You don't know. They could be the next Pulitzer Prize winner. They could be the next person that discovers something that will transform life on this planet. You don't know that. I also heard recently of a friend of mine whose several children went really, really off the wire. Daughter got into huge, huge uh, moral failure and tragedy and, and life wrecked and son drinking and driving one night killed another person. And that person's life is shrunken back now in sadness and heartbreak, and a certain sense of guilt. Parents tend to take that on. And I felt very badly when I heard about that because I thought there's, there's two tragedies here. One is the tragedies. That's part of it. The other part is the pain that the parents feel over children that have gone badly off the reservation. And it's heartbreaking. But I want to say to every parent here this morning, 
Don't own what isn't yours. Your kids make their own choices. You know, nothing makes me gag. I mean, I don't do this openly when people sit in my office and say, not that I've ever had a serial rapist or killer sit in my office. That's never happened to me that I'm aware of. But, you know, somebody says, well, I, I just do these terrible things I do because my mother treated me so badly. Hogwash. You do the things you do because you've chosen that lifestyle. I don't care who your mother was. She's not your problem. You've made adult choices that are bad. And one of the things that as parents you ought all to settle, (laughs) there are no perfect parents on the planet. Ever since Adam and Eve made a bad choice, every parent has been flawed. But you know what? I don't know of many parents who deliberately set out to reproduce hellions. They, they intend to bring children into the world who will contribute to family and society and culture. That's their goal. They want to do the right thing. They try to do the right thing. And yeah, you look back and you say, I made some mistakes. I don't know any parent that would ever look back and say, I never made a mistake raising my kids. Yeah, you did. You know it. But everybody did. But most parents want the best, try the best, have the right goals. And when their children grow up, they too have choices. And the fact that you brought them into this world and nurtured them and fed them and clothed them and cared for them and poured your life into them and now they're making horrible choices does not mean that that is your fault. I wish I could drill that into the heart of, of, of the parents that I meet that are suffering because God made Adam and Eve. And He is the perfect parent. And He gave them a free choice. And they went off the reservation. And right now today, God has seven billion human beings to whom, in one sense, He is the Heavenly Father. Not the intimate sense of relationship, but in the paternal sense of He he provides for them. He gives sun and rain and food and blessing. And God blesses this earth and this world. And He has seven billion kids running around down here, most of whom are making terrible choices. And we'll pay the consequences. And it doesn't diminish his love. And it certainly doesn't make him responsible. So I want you to know this morning that if you are suffering in grief over choices that a child has made, you have one who really understands you in the person of God the Father. And it does not in any way diminish his goodness. He is a great God of love. Father, I pray this morning that you would give us insight into your goodness, that we would come to appreciate and be thankful for all the blessings that we have. I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Carrie Brooks.